0: Going from chapter 8, and we'll be starting at verse 27. All right, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he may be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd of him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them where he comes, in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks, Carl.
1: Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have spoken to us Uh, in the Bible and in Jesus Christ, your own Son. Uh, And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear this morning uh, and to take your words to heart. Lord, we pray that uh, when we leave here this morning that all of us would leave with the cross of Jesus strapped to our back. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences uh, where you discover something about somebody that you never knew. Uh, it often happens when you meet somebody, you know, you meet someone and, uh, you know, you find out their name and you kind of form this initial impression of them. Uh, but then as the conversation goes on, you discover more about them and, uh, and often they turn out to be someone, you know, you discover things that you just never expected. Um, so I remember about a year ago, I was at a friend's house and someone came over Uh, and and we were just all sort of standing around talking. And I was talking to this guy, and as the conversation kind of went on, I got the impression that I should really know who this guy was, you know? Like, I I should have heard of him before. Uh, And it it turned out he was actually a really famous, like, reputable choral composer. Uh, And I was just driving along uh, yesterday listening to Classic FM, and they they said, uh, and that was written by, you know, and it was this, this guy. I had no idea, just seemed like an ordinary person, but actually really talented man. Uh, my other favourite story uh, was of, the, of at a time I was uh, at Melbourne University, my uncle used to be one of the um, heads of one of the colleges there, and we were sitting at high table, as it's called, and this lady just kind of came, just bumbling in, I don't know how else to describe it, she kind of, kind of was all, you know, all over the place, she seemed, you know, she was late and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, my aunt introduced her, uh, and and once I sort of had discovered, uh, you know, sort of met her, I said, ah. Oh, and tell me, Marsha, what what do you do with yourself? Uh, you know, and she goes, "I'm actually running a royal commission into family violence." I went, "Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting." Uh, you know, you form you form an impression of people, don't you? And then and then you begin to discover more about them. Uh, it, it happens with people that we've only just met, but it also can happen with people that we've known for it for a while. So. Uh In my growth group, uh, there are a number of women who bring their knitting along uh, now that 's kind of you know that 's not surprising okay you know, that that kind of thing happens uh we We were thinking of calling it the wool and the word uh, and 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 maybe whiskey but anyway uh but It's fair enough that uh, some of the women bring their knitting along, but actually this last week, one of the blokes brought their knitting along as well. Uh, And it wasn't me. And I won't tell you who it was, but you would be very surprised, let me just say that. Sometimes you can know someone, but not quite know them. Isn't isn't that right? Uh, You discover something about them, uh, and, and it changes everything. And and that's really what happens in this part of Mark's biography of Jesus. The disciples have known Jesus, they've been with him for for a while, they've been following him around, they've seen him do amazing things, they've come to understand profound things about who Jesus is, but in this passage Jesus also wants to push deeper their understanding of who he is, Uh, and he also wants to push deeper their understanding of what it means to follow him. So they know him but he wants that to go deeper. So we ourselves have been trying to come to understand who Jesus is in the last few weeks. We've been uh, trying to kind of paint a portrait of Jesus and now we're kind of halfway through Mark's gospel uh, and the issue of Jesus' identity really comes to a head. It comes to a head when Jesus asks his disciples who do they think that he is, uh, Jesus, first of all, actually kind of zooms out and and asks them who it is that that people around them think that Jesus is. What are the rumours about who Jesus is? Uh, so they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah's, and still others one of the prophets. So Jesus had done pretty amazing things, he'd done remarkable things, he was healing people, raising dead, teaching in a way that no one else had ever taught before, and people are kind of talking to themselves and going, who, do, who is this guy, who is this Jesus? Uh, and some people... Come up with a great idea. Well, maybe it's John the Baptist. He was pretty amazing. Maybe Jesus is, uh, is just John. John had been killed by Herod at this stage, but maybe he's come back. Maybe he's come back to life. But the disciples are thinking to themselves, no, it can't be that, because we saw John and Jesus appear together. So it can't be, they can't be the same person. Uh, he must be somebody else. Well, some, of, some people then are saying that Jesus is maybe Elijah. Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets, uh, and maybe he'd come back from the dead. Uh, one of the most extraordinary things that Jesus had done in his ministry was to raise a little girl uh, back to life. And in the Old Testament, there's a story of Elijah doing something similar with, uh, with a little boy. So you can understand then why people might be thinking to themselves, well, maybe you know, he's done, Jesus has done something like Elijah, Maybe, maybe he's Elijah, come back from the dead. But there were differences too, Uh, in in Jesus' ministry. There was a difference between Jesus uh, and the prophets. Jesus seemed to be able to do miracles at will. Uh, Jesus seemed to have an authority that neither Elijah nor any of the other prophets seemed to have. Jesus didn't just seem to speak for God. Jesus seemed to speak as God. So having heard then what other people think about him, Jesus wants to know from the disciples themselves, what do they think? Who do they think that Jesus is? Verse 29, what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter gives this great answer. He says, you're the Messiah. You know, Peter gets lots of stuff wrong, but this is one of those places where he gets it right. Uh, You're the Messiah or you're the Christ. It's really two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, One's a Hebrew word and one's a Greek word. It's, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed, the Greek word Christ means anointed as well. Jesus is God's anointed, which maybe doesn't help us that much, uh, but, but it helped Peter. So in the Old Testament, uh, God, uh, there, were, there were people that God had raised up to lead his people uh, and they would be anointed as a way of kind of appointing them, setting them apart for that position of authority or leadership. Uh, So priests would be anointed to spiritual leadership of the people. Kings would be anointed to the civil leadership of the people. And the prophets were also anointed at times uh, to kind of uh, lead the people in in revealing God's word to them. But the Old Testament, so it has that hope of of prophets, priests and kings being anointed to service for God. But the Old Testament also sort of has this hope that one day God would raise up one man who'd be greater than all those prophets, priests, and kings, and through that one man, God would put the world right. He'd rescue his people uh, who, who link up with that Messiah. Uh, So right after the world was plunged into chaos by Adam and Eve, by their rejection of God, God promised Eve that a a person would come, that a man would come through whom God would fix the world. Then God promised Abraham that through one of his descendants, God would bless the world. Then God reiterated that to Isaac and to Jacob, and then God promised David that through one of his own descendants, God would uh, bless the world and fix the world, that he'd raise up a king who would bring peace and rest and deliverance from evil, so over again, over and over again in the Old Testament, there is this hope of this uh, of this one person, this one anointed person, uh, through whom God will fix the world. And Peter is saying to Jesus, "You are that guy. God's been promising for for millennia that someone would come and fix the world, and that's who you are. You are the one through whom God is going to rescue His people and crush evil and put the world back together again." So the crowds, who do they think Jesus is? They think he's John the Baptist, maybe, or Elijah. They're just confused. Peter says, no, you're the Messiah. But the question, I think, for us is not who who are the crowds saying that Jesus is, and it's not even who is Peter saying that Jesus is. The question, I think, that we need to answer for ourselves is, who do I think that Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? You see, Jesus recognises in speaking to his disciples that there's light years of difference between who does everybody say that I am and who do you say that I am? Okay, they say that, but what about you? What do you think about who I am? Uh, It's probably the most important question that any of us can ever answer. Who do I think that Jesus is? I just want you to think about that actually for a moment. So who do you think that Jesus is? Uh, I'm not asking you to tell me uh, who other people think that Jesus is. I'm not asking you to tell me what your parents think. Uh, I'm not asking if you can repeat or explain to me what Peter is saying. Uh, I'm not asking if you you can just kind of give me the pat answers... I'm asking what you think. Who do you actually think that Jesus is? You might think that Jesus is a really nice guy. Well, he is a nice guy. I reckon if you probably met him, you'd go, Well, this guy's this guy's pretty nice. But we need more than just a nice guy, don't we? You might think he's a great moral teacher. But what we need is not just a great moral teacher. We don't just need more rules uh, that we can follow because more rules won't actually make us better people. The more rules that we get, the more creative we get in how to break them. Uh, You might think that Jesus is just a a fiction. He's just made up. He never lived. But there were people like Peter and and the disciples and loads of other Christians who, who met Jesus, who knew Jesus. People from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of cultures who are convinced that, like Peter, Jesus was no ordinary guy, that Jesus was that man that God had been promising, that Messiah. What we need is not a nice guy or a great moral teacher or some fiction that will make us feel better about the meaning of our lives. What we need is a Messiah who can fix the world, who can fix us, who can forgive our sins, who can make us better people, who can fix our relationship with the God who made us and who loves us. It's so important that you and I know the identity of Jesus and believe the identity of Jesus. Why is that so important? It's important because it's the foundation of our relationship with God. Identity is the foundation of all our relationships. Uh, If you think that Jesus is just another guy, then you'll relate to him just as another guy, right? You know, Jesus is my best friend, uh, if you think that Jesus is a great moral teacher, then you'll relate to him like that. You'll listen to, to, to what he says, you'll, you'll try and do it, but you won't know him. You won't have a kind of relationship with him. He's just kind of a, the great rule book in the sky. Uh, if you think that Jesus is just a fiction, just a fabrication of the, uh, of, of the minds of the early church, then you, then you won't have a relationship with Jesus at all because he's just made up. But if you think that Jesus is the saviour of the world, that he's God come in the flesh to rescue us from ourselves, from our rebellion. If you think that Jesus is God come in the flesh to die on a cross, to crush our sin. And he's not only died, but he's been raised to life and we share in his new life. If you think that that's who Jesus is, then what will you do? You'll fall at Jesus' feet, won't you? And you'll run to Jesus and you go, man, I need you. Identity is at at the foundation of relationship. We need to know who Jesus is so that we can really know him and embrace him. The identity of Jesus is not just an interesting theological point. It's foundational to our relationship with him. And Peter recognised that. He recognised what matters. Jesus is the Messiah, the one through whom God is rescuing uh, his people. But although Peter... Got that, uh, and although the other disciples got that Jesus was the Messiah, it turns out they're actually still a bit woolly on what all of that means. Uh, so once Peter testifies that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus goes on to explain what that means. I guess he, you know, he's probably aware that they're not quite on the same page. And Jesus says in verse thirty-one, uh, or Mark tells the story in verse thirty-one, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, after three, and after three days rise again. Uh, so Jesus kind of begins to teach them what it means, but his explanation of his role as the Messiah doesn't stack up with what Peter and the other disciples are thinking. Peter and the other Jews of his time were not expecting a suffering Messiah but a triumphant victorious one. If you think of that background of uh, you know, kings and of David being anointed king, they're not thinking of someone dying on a cross. They're thinking of someone ruling as a king uh, and being seen to rule as a king. They're expecting someone to come in glory and to defeat evil in a spectacular way, not someone to come and be rejected and to be crucified and to be put to death. What, after all, would that achieve? No, Peter is so disturbed by Jesus' statement that he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Talk about bad move. Uh, but Peter is so self-possessed uh, that, he, that he says, you know, he rebukes Jesus. And yet Peter gets in his turn more than he bargained for. Jesus uh, rebukes Peter himself. He turns to Peter and he says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Wow. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus rebukes Peter and and he says that rejecting Jesus' purpose as a suffering Messiah is to side with Satan. Satan. More than that, by rejecting Jesus' suffering, Peter is unknowingly acting on Satan's behalf. He's trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus, don't be stupid. You don't need to do that. That's not important. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's the word, that's the thinking of Satan." Why does Jesus react so strongly to what Peter says? Well, he reacts so strongly because suffering for our sins is at the heart of what it means for Jesus to be our Messiah. A Messiah who doesn't suffer for our sins is no Messiah at all. I mean, what good would it do for Jesus to come in victory, to destroy evil and to set up his kingdom on earth if he didn't actually reconcile people to God? So there's Jesus' beautiful kingdom, but actually no one can be in it. Because we're all still God's enemies. We're all still opposed to God. Listen to how Paul describes us in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, who were by nature deserving of wrath. We are God's enemies. What good is it if Jesus sets up his kingdom if none of us can ever enter it? And without the cross, none of us can ever enter it. Or what good would it do for Jesus to come in victory and to establish God's kingdom if none of us could live in it according to God's ways? Without sharing in Jesus' death, we're all still slaves to sin and Satan. And so without the cross, Jesus would come and establish this beautiful kingdom of God and then we'd all come in and we'd pollute it. We destroy it. We turn it from being something beautiful and wonderful to something hideous and ugly. Instead of a place of peace, it will be a place of division. Instead of a place of love, it will be a place of jealousy and bitterness and revenge and recriminations. Instead of a place of good, it will be a place of evil. Evil. No, we don't just need a Messiah who comes and establishes this beautiful kingdom. We we don't just need a Messiah who can show us a better way. We need a Messiah who can crush the curse of our sinfulness and clothe us in God's light. We need a Messiah who can bury our sins in the depth of the sea. So that when we enter that kingdom that Jesus establishes, God welcomes us and says, Welcome, friend. Welcome, child. We need a Messiah who can bury our sins in the depth of the sea and can raise us up as people in whom God delights. Edward Shalito was a minister in England during the First World War and he wrote these words, I think we should get right to the heart uh, of the paradox of Jesus' Messiahship. He wrote, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode... But thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. Jesus blew the minds of Peter and his disciples when he said, I'm not coming as a king in victory, I'm coming as a king on a cross, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Peter understood that Jesus is the Messiah, but he failed to understand how that works or what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Jesus is a Messiah who suffers for our sins. So Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that people expected. Uh, He's a Messiah who's despised and rejected. But as though that's not kind of bad enough, that's not kind of blowing the minds of the disciples enough Jesus then finally goes on to explain that what is true of him as the messiah is also true of the people who will follow him suffering and rejection is not just his path him over there but actually suffering and rejection is the path of the people of all the people who uh, link up with him and follow him Jesus says in verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So discipleship requires following Jesus and following Jesus requires following in his footsteps. It means uh, denying ourselves and taking up our cross. It means walking in the way that Jesus walked. It means uh, walking not in the way of immediate victory but in the way of rejection uh, and suffering. So, Jesus explains that in more detail in verse 35. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So, here's the bargain that you and I have to enter in on there's a deal. (laughs) To gain life in eternity, we have to lose life now. To gain life in eternity, eternity, We have to lose our lives now. I was talking to Ben before the service and he said, the gospel isn't easy. It's simple. But it's not easy. To gain life in eternity, we have to lose life now. It's not complicated to understand, is it? But it costs us everything. I was talking to one of our missionaries the other day You'll know who they are. They work in a Muslim country uh, where becoming a Christian can mean losing everything. Uh, and one man has become a Christian through their ministry. Ben, it's not his real name, but Ben became a Christian uh, a few months ago through their ministry. And because of that, Ben has lost everything. Uh, he lost his job, he lost his second job. He was kicked out of the home that he was living in. He was sharing with uh, a number of other Muslim men. He literally ended up on the street with everything he owned on the street beside him. Uh, Not to mention he's an illegal immigrant in the country where he is. There's nothing to fall back on. He can't go home to where he is uh, because that place is war-torn. Now, there were Christians who were able to help him rent a new place but not before he experienced all that trauma of losing everything that he had. But Ben said to our missionary, You said that this would happen, and look, it's happened. Not in the sense, How could you let this happen to me? But in the sense, You know what? You, you told me that this is, this is what it would cost. And I was, I was on for that. And you know what? This is exactly what it's cost me. Praise the Lord. Ben's new goal is to become a pastor and maybe return to his home country to share the good news about Jesus with other people. Uh, Not only is that country uh, rent by war, but if he was to return and people were to discover what he was doing, he would almost certainly be put to death. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He's been a Christian for a couple of months and his absolute desire is to become a pastor to tell people about Jesus. Uh, I don't know about you, but Ben's willingness to suffer for the gospel uh, and Ben's willingness to lose his life in order to follow Jesus makes me ashamed. Uh, It makes me ashamed of how difficult I find it to give things up for the sake of the gospel. He's been a Christian for a few months. I've been a Christian for, what, 20 years maybe. I've studied at a Bible college And he's more willing to face death and lose everything for the sake of the gospel than I am. Uh, But it also makes me embarrassed because I think if Ben came and visited our church and spent a week here among our lives, I think he'd be confused and maybe heartbroken as well. Uh, I'm sure there are people here whose lives... He would be encouraged by, but I suspect he'd also be bewildered by the lives of many of us. We're worried about losing the quality of our life. He's worried about losing his life. We're worried about whether someone will frown at us for saying something that they don't like to hear. We're worried about losing an hour of a week from from hour a week from our hobbies or our precious TV shows, or our me time, whatever it is, Ben has lost his job and his home, uh, and maybe he'll lose his life. Uh, Jesus wasn't being metaphorical when he said we have to give up our lives. Nothing less than being willing to die in the service of Jesus uh, is enough. And my advice to you is that if you're not willing to give up your life to follow Jesus, then either get serious and give it up to Jesus or stop pretending and don't bother coming back next week. I mean, honestly, what's the point? What's the point of pretending to to know and follow Jesus when you're not? Either get serious and give your life up to Jesus or stop pretending. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time it cost you something to follow Jesus? And really think hard about that. Seriously think about that. When was the last time it cost you? What was it that it cost you? What, what did you willingly forsake or go without or give up? There'll be some people here who are sitting here and they, can, and they know exactly what it was. They don't even have to think about it. They know because the pain is still raw. But some of us will be sitting here and think, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever made a decision in my life which has cost me anything for Jesus' sake. If it's never, if, And if following Jesus has never cost us anything, then we have to seriously question whether we know Jesus at all. You can't follow a Messiah who goes to the cross and not go to the cross yourself. The path only leads in one direction. There is no other path except the one that goes past the foot of the cross. Are you willing to lose your life to follow Jesus? It sounds so heavy, doesn't it? You wonder why anyone would do it. But as Jesus goes on to show, it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you? Look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, the whole world, and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus says, what good does it do to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? (laughs) What is it that you want so desperately that you're willing to give up eternity for? What good does it do to deny Jesus now only to stand before Jesus on the last day and to be denied by him? I can't think of any words that will be worse to hear in the whole world than, I never knew you. Depart from me. And for what? What? What does it get you to sell out Jesus to become a millionaire? Or to sell out Jesus and to get the relationship that you've always wanted? Or to sell out Jesus and to get the freedom that you want, to do whatever you want, to spend the money, your money how you want, to make decisions how you want? What, is, what does it get you? Maybe it gets you a few years of fun and kind of an easy life. You know, there's some great stuff, on, some great stuff on offer <laughs> in the world. But you know, it's not going to last. The grave is a narrow slot. I came across uh, this week John Piper's famous sermon from about 20 years ago uh, in which he preached to thousands, tens of thousands of young people uh, and he encouraged them not to waste their life. Uh, And in that sermon, he quotes an article about an older couple who did waste their life. Uh, He quotes, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. Piper goes on to say, That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream, the American dream, or we could say the Australian dream, a nice car, a nice house, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting seashells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, Piper says, my shell collection. And I've got a great swing and look at my boat. What is it exactly that you so desperately want for which it's worth sacrificing an eternity? A shell collection? A shack? A relaxed semi rural lifestyle? A university degree, a dream job, significance, love, a family, your children's futures. You tell yourself, just a few more months, just a few more years and then Jesus can have me. Then he'll have my life, then he'll have my time, then he'll have my energy but I just need this first, whatever this is. What are you giving up to have that? You're giving up the Messiah, the rescuer of the world, the God of heaven and earth, who gives himself, who gave himself up in love and who gives himself up in love for us every day. You're giving up eternity with that God, with that Jesus, And not just eternity, but life now with that God and with that Jesus. You see, we not only need to know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the saviour of the world. We don't only need to know who he is. We need to do something about it. We need to say to Jesus, I'm with you, Jesus. And if it costs me everything, I'm still there. You can have my life. I don't even care anymore it's yours because you're more important to me than anything else we need to take up give up our lives we need to take up our cross and we need to follow Jesus well Amy Carmichael was a lady who did that she was a missionary to India Uh, she worked among orphans there and she saved the lives of hundreds of people But she also suffered immensely in the work that she did. Uh, And she wrote this this powerful poem, which I'm sure I've read before, but uh, it's the kind of thing that you could read every day, I think. She wrote, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear these sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou No scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that encompassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced to the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who has no wound or scar? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know who you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of God sent to rescue people from their sins. And in response to your love and mercy, we offer you our lives. Please take them and help us to let them go. Please help us to consider our lives worth nothing to us, except that we might finish the race and complete the task which you have given us of loving and serving Jesus with all our heart.